Today we're going to start with a little game, because I like to take Brian's energy of the comedic genius that he has and carry that through. We give Brian a round of applause for faithfully showing up and serving us. So we're going through this series and we're looking at all of the different Psalms, which are songs. So what I wanted to do is to point out how powerful some songs are in our lives, because sometimes all you need is a little phrase and you may know the rest of the song. Does that make sense? So as soon as you know the song, I want you to sing along so that I don't have to, because as soon as you get it, then I can stop singing. Does that make sense? So here's the first one. Lean on me. Got it. Nice. We built this city. We built this city on. Thank you. Here's one from my childhood. My brother is 12 years younger than I, and he would watch this movie every single day. And we hated it. And it goes like this. It goes, be our guest. Be our guest. Oh, you guys didn't watch it as much as me. You know the song from Beauty and the Beast? How about this one? When peace like a river tendeth my way, when sorrow... Good work. If you like to talk to, if uh, can, nice Veggie Tales. That's for my kids. It's a beautiful day in the, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? That one carries through. Did you know that they redid that in this cartoon now? I thought that was so awesome. Wise men say, only fools rush, but I can't help falling in love. Baby shark, we're just totally ruining some of these moments that we're having. All the different Christmas songs, right? All you need is a little bit. So here's some Christmas songs. Have yourself. Oh, holy night. You're a mean one. All it's taking is just a few words, and we're able to pull all of these different things. All I want for Christmas is my... That was Ethan's song last year, my son. He had lost him, and every time I would see him without his two teeth, I would start singing it. Did it to Caleb before that, he started to hate it. Last one, promise. This one I want us to all sing. Ready? Amazing grace. That saved a rat. 
blind, but now I see. Father, I thank you that you're here in this place with us and that we get to look at one of your songs that your son Jesus would sing over and over and over to himself. Help us to be stirred and divided in to your love and your hope and your peace today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Give yourselves a round of applause. Thank you for singing and playing my game. See, there are certain songs, like I've been mentioning, that immediately draw us back to certain places. There's certain times where we hear a song that's like, wow, like there's some of those like 90s, late 90s, like pump up workout songs that I can remember the gym that I'm in when I hear that song, getting ready for a basketball game in high school. There's other times where we maybe hear a wedding song. There's a song that we played at our wedding and every time I hear it, which isn't often, I'm immediately reminded of that day. And for those of you that weren't there, which is most of you, I had this obnoxious smile on my face. I was the goofiest, lankiest, like scrawny kid. I was so excited. But then there's some other songs. So we were on a trip recently and I was excited to be there. We were on a boat and over the intercom, the song Dancing Queen came on. You guys know the ABBA song Dancing Queen? And for most people, it's just like, they don't even really think about it. I teared up because that was one of my mom's favorite songs. So it comes on and it's, it's a, I mean, it's a happy song, but I'm sitting there in front of hundreds of people and I just, I just tear up because it made me remember my mom. I thought, here we are on vacation, but like the song like moved me. Same with What a Wonderful World. That song is so dumb. I hate it so much. <laughs> because it reminds me of my grandpa. Every time I hear it, like, it just brings me back. And it's like, it's so hard to have these things that like hit us. So why am I talking about this? What I want us to think of as we're going through this whole series is all of the Psalms that we're looking at were songs. So sometimes I just read them and I think, I'm just reading through it as a text. I wish that we knew how to sing them because I actually think that would help me. Because if I knew the tune and I could sing along, it would be a little bit different. And I'm not going to try to sing this one. So, you're welcome. We're going to look today at Psalm 110. When Scott first came to me and said, hey, what psalm do you want to do? I was like, I don't really know. I wrestled with it for a long time. He was already doing Psalm 1. There's some other famous psalms that were already being taken. So I just kind of prayed through it. And I was like, let's take a look at this one. And I'll explain later why I picked it. But here's Psalm 110. So remember, this is a song that Jesus and all of his friends and everyone that grew up in this culture would have sung, would have known. So when I started this, when I would say, Yahweh said to my Lord, the Messiah, they would be able to pick up the rest of the song, much like what we just did with our songs. I want us to remember that as we're going through. So we may never have read this before, But this was famous enough for them that if I just said that, if I just said, the Lord says to my Lord is another translation. That's all I would have to say. And they would be able to go through, because it's only seven verses long. They would be able to sing the rest of that song. Does that make sense? So let's read through it. This is the Passion Translation. It's a newer translation. Um, I've started to read it 
in addition to some of the others, and I kind of like the way that it, that it reads. If you're looking for something that is a good translation, but maybe has a little bit, um, what's the right word, a little more verbose, or it kind of makes it a little flowery sounds wrong. But anyways, here, I'm going to read it. Yahweh said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit with me as enthroned ruler while I subdue your very enemy, your every enemy. They will bow low before you as I make them a footstool for your feet. Messiah, I know God himself will establish your kingdom as you reign in Zion glory. For he says to you, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will be your love offerings. In the day of your mighty power, you will be exalted. In the brightness of your holy ones, you will shine as an army rising from the womb in the dawn. Anointed with the dew of your youth, Yahweh has taken a solemn oath and will never back away from it, saying, You are a priest for eternity after the manner of Melchizedek. The Lord stands in full authority to shatter to pieces the kings who stand against you on the day he displays his terrible wrath. He will judge every rebellious nation, filling their battlefields with corpses, and will shatter the strongholds of ruling powers. Yet he himself will drink from his inheritance as from a flowing brook. Refreshed by love, he will stand victorious. Who knows that song? What a great, happy little number. <laughs> why in the world did you pick this one? That's what we're going to find out. So the reason why I picked this psalm is because it's the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament of any other place that you find. So when we look through the New Testament, they quoted these seven verses, particularly two of them, more times than any other text in the Old Testament. Why? Because I just read through it, and if you're like me, I bet you missed it. Because the first time I read through it, I was like, that's kind of weird. Like, I don't understand all of this, and that's okay. That's what we're going to walk through. One of the first things that we see right in verse 1, this is in your notes if you're taking notes on the app, it's... David announces, David's the writer of this psalm, the Trinity. So David presents to us this idea that there is a Trinity. And we see it there in the ESV. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that phrase right there, Lord and Lord, are different words for Lord. That's where English fails us. The first one is the, the name Yahweh, which is what, the, what they would use for God the Father. And the second is the word Adonai, or Messiah. It's a similar, you can kind of use those. So it's God Yahweh is saying to God the Messiah, sit at my right hand. So it's a presentation of this idea that there's, is there two gods, is there one? But David is basically proclaiming that there is a Lord saying to another Lord this. So Jesus quotes this. He uses a riddle. I love Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. It was, I just think it's so great. You have to look at the way that he treats them. Self-righteous, people who are arrogant, coming without being learners, thinking they know everything. And Jesus would often try to flip that aside and just say, you really don't know everything because you're missing love. But here's what he says. So this is in Matthew 22. 
the Pharisees come and they ask him a question. They're trying to trick him. They said, God, what, or Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in all the law? And Jesus replies to them, many of you may know this, love God, love others. That's the short version. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as you love yourself. They were trying to trick him, and he presents this, and they were like, man, that's really good. But it says this next verse, he comes and he flips it on them. He says, while they were still gathered together, this is verse 41, it says, Jesus asked them a question. This is where he quotes out of this Psalm 110. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's the son of David. Because the Christ, the Messiah, had to come from the line of David. He was going to be a king that came and had to come from the line of David. That was, that's what all of the Jews knew. They were watching for him. Anyone that was a descendant of David going, maybe it's you. We'll have to find out. It says, whose son is he? And he says to them, this is the riddle, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he also David's son? How is he his son as well? And they were all like, I'm not ever asking him a question again. <laughs> because they didn't understand it. They, didn't, they couldn't figure out how is David calling him Lord and yet it's going to be his son. Because it couldn't be a son if it was Lord. And basically Jesus is teeing it up for them, what he's going to walk into over the next several years of his ministry. He was setting them up to be able to see, yes, it is me. I am the Messiah. They hadn't seen it yet. Okay, so why is this the most quoted though? This one verse, Psalm 110.1, was quoted either directly or alluded to 24 times throughout the New Testament. So many of those times are Matthew, Mark, Luke recalling the same story. So a few of those, there's some overlap because through the Gospels, it was telling the same story. But there was often times where Jesus would quote this. He would talk about how the Son of Man would need to be seated at the right hand of God. And some of us, that's a pretty common phrase. We've heard it it's in different songs, things like that. We've gotten used to this idea. Well, this is where it was first presented in that Psalm 110. So we see Peter at Pentecost in Acts. He talks about it, how Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Stephen at his stoning a little bit later in Acts. That's what happens. Stephen's being stoned to death, and he looks up into heaven. And what gives him hope to remain there and take the punishment that was being given to him as he looks up and he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. And it was enough for him to say, I, I can be with you. I trust you. Even to my death. So that's alluded to there. We see it, Paul, he talks about it in Corinthians when he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection and why that needed to happen. The writer of Hebrews is a ton of Hebrews is attributed to this psalm. There's so many references back to it. Um, one of them is this. I'd like you guys to close your eyes. I want you to listen to this scripture. Sometimes if we take away distraction, it helps. Uh, don't fall asleep unless you really need to. But... <laughs> Close your eyes and just listen. So this is out of Hebrews. It says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's important for us, you can open your eyes, it's important for us to know that Jesus was placed at the right hand of the Father for a reason. Scott mentioned it last week. The right hand of whoever was sitting there was the position of power. It's, we use that term, you still hear it today, right hand man, right hand woman. This is the person that I fully trust, who I want to put in charge. This is who God chose to sit next to him. And we see that through this. The, the New Testament writers were wanting to focus in on that. Over and over again, they quoted this scripture out of Psalm 110, where Jesus was at the right hand of the Father. And if we read through this without knowing that, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss how important that was, that they wanted to reiterate it over and over again. They wanted to remind themselves of how important that was. One of the last places that we see this reference is in 1 Peter. And Peter also says, Jesus was at the right hand with angels and authorities and powers subjected to him. All of the angels, all of the powers, all authorities on earth are subjected to Jesus. He is in control. Now, it doesn't mean that it may not be confusing. That we may not have times where it doesn't feel like it. But the thing to remember is that it's true. If we were to get a glimpse up into the throne room of heaven today, we would see Jesus, the right hand of the Father, ruling over all. So one of the times that Jesus quotes this is how we know that it was talking about that Trinity. So Jesus, the night that he died, 
He has the Last Supper. Then he goes to the garden. He's having them pray. And then he gets arrested in the garden and he gets brought before the council. So when he got brought before the council, here's what they did. And they said they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Everyone that was powerful. Peter had followed from a distance right to the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards warming himself with the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. They wanted to kill him because he was creating such an uprising. There were people who were following him, and they didn't want him to be in charge. They didn't want him to be the Messiah. They were fighting against it because they didn't believe. And they brought him and they said, for many had bore fault witness. They were even lying about it, but their testimony did not agree. So they were trying to set him up. And some stood up and bore fault witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's been made with hands in three days, and I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony they didn't agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst of Jesus in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? They're questioning him. They wanted an answer from him. Please say something. But he remained silent and didn't give an answer. And again the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. He says, and you will see the Son of Man seated to the right hand of power, coming with the clouds in heaven. Jesus quoting this verse. When he said that, when he said, you will see me seated at the right hand of God, you can see what happens in the next verse to this person that did not believe he was God. Because they knew the song. When Jesus said that phrase, you will see me seated at the right hand of God. If you didn't believe that he was God, you would have been so angry and frustrated. And it says that that's what he did. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need you have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? Talking to the crowd. And they all condemned him as deserving of death. Jesus made the claim that yes, I am God. Some people think that Jesus was just a good person or he was a prophet. They will teach that and it's not true. So important for our doctrine to realize Jesus here said yes. And the way that he did it was by reminding them of this psalm. Because as we're going to read through this psalm, it talks about what this Messiah is. We're just in verse 1. But he was reminding them of that psalm. And he, the high priest, had sung the psalm himself. Waiting for a Messiah. Waiting for a king who was going to rise up and take control of the nation. And put the enemies his enemies under his foot. See in Hebrews 12 too, this was the moment where it says, looking, we look to Jesus. We're running a race. We want to shed off everything that keeps us from running a good race. And we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. This was the moment where Jesus said, you can have me. He was trying to be quiet. 
All of this had been leading up to this. And at this moment, he said, you can have me. You can take me now. Here's who I am. I am the Messiah. And for the joy set before me, endured the cross, despising its shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of God. There's that phrase again. A lot of us knew that verse. I knew that verse. And I had never made that connection of what Jesus was doing there. And then the, the writer of Hebrews is reminding us this is who that person is. Jesus is part of the Trinity. So we're going to keep looking now. Point number two, we need to realize not only is he the man-God, the God-man, but he is also king. And here we don't necessarily have the idea, I mean, we know what kings are, but because our government doesn't have a king, we don't necessarily understand this concept. But we need to see in verse 1 through 3 that Jesus is king. We read, keep, keep going through. It says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The scepter is this um, visual picture and also just a metaphor that's used throughout the Old Testament as being this, whoever has the scepter is the one who's in charge. This is the person who we know is in charge. Jesus has this scepter while he's sitting at the right hand of God. God has made him king and the ruler. Now here's the best part. Jesus is not a dictator king. Jesus is not a king that uses that scepter and says, you will do what I tell you to do. Remarkably, he's given us the free will for us to choose. That's what it says in here. Your people will offer themselves freely. And that's what I see when I look around this room. I see many of us who say, I'll do whatever you say. Freely I come and I serve. And I give all to you. Here's what Spurgeon said. He said, his work is done and he may sit. It is well done and he may sit at his right hand. It may have grand results and he may therefore quietly wait to see the complete victory which is certain to follow. Jesus in that moment had done what he needed to do. And God said, sit here, and it's going to unfold. You be the king that's in charge. You see, the Christ, the Messiah, that the Jews were looking for, that they were longing for, that David wrote this psalm about, he didn't know who it was. David penned this. It says, through the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit's involved in all of this as well, the part of the Trinity. The king had to come from David. And this is why when you read in the, some of the Gospels, they take the time to write out all of the genealogies. I remember as a kid reading this going, this person begat, this person begat, this person begat. And I'm like, why is this in here? Like, let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the miracles. Let's get to this. But what we're missing in that is that they were building a case for Jesus as they were writing these. Those books were written to other Jewish believers, primarily. Now, does it extend to us? Of course it extends to us. What they were doing is they were trying to show, we need to show that Jesus was king. Because the only way that Jesus could be king was, was if, if he was part of the bloodline of David. Because that's what had been prophesied over and over and over again. So they take the time, verse after verse, 
to go all the way through. Here's who Jesus came from. So that other people as they're reading this go, all right, that checks out. Because they needed to know that Jesus was king. Who else was Jesus? Who do we find out in here? We find out that Jesus was also priest. And a priest is obviously someone that we don't also have too much experience with. Thankfully, there was no one waiting at the door for your sacrifice today. Who brought their doves and their rams and all the different things you needed to do for all of the sins that you did this week? Hopefully none of you had to bring that. There's a reason that we don't do that. One is there's no temple, and we don't believe that that's needed anymore. But this verse was really the reason why we no longer need those sacrifices. This is the second most quoted verse. Verse 4 in all of the New Testament. Verse 1 is the most quoted. Verse 4 is the second most quoted. So when it's the most quoted or second most, we want to pay attention to that. So here's what it says. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. I'll emphasize that so you can pay attention. After the order of Mekizeldek. Mekizeldek, I don't There's. I looked up how to actually say it, and there was like 14 different ways online where how you're supposed to say that name. So this is the second most quoted verse in all of the Old Testament in the New Testament. I was starting to clue in at this one. I was like, oh, I should probably pay attention to why that is. Like, there's a reason why they thought we should explain what this verse means. So who was this Mokaizeldek? It's an interesting person. It actually came before Abraham. So Abraham, father of the Jews. This is before Abraham which is really helpful information. Because then, once the Jewish people came, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then there was the 12 sons, and that's when the line started. So all of the families of all of those sons, one of them was Judah, he was one of the brothers, and out of that line was going to be where the king came. That's where David came through. He was part of the tribe of Judah. Now all of the priests eventually came from the tribe of Levi. So eventually... Down through that tribe, we had all of the different priests who came. And all the priests who came were limited. They would have either a period of time or their life where they were the high priest, or they were the ones who were in charge of taking all of the sacrifices. So what does this mean for us? If the king is going to come from the line of Judah, or David eventually, and the priests were coming from Levi, it would be near impossible for that person to be the same. Because you're either coming from this line or you're coming from this line. Does that make sense? So you're going to be one or the other. So how here can Jesus be presented as a priest? And part of it goes back to this. So Melchizedek was a priest before all of this. It's helpful for me to learn that. He was a priest who was the king over a city called Salem. Not surprisingly, the city of Salem turned into the city of Jerusalem. There's something about this. I know Scott always jokes about it, but I had never been to Israel. The number of crazy stories that as you're reading through this, I would have missed it, that point back to for some reason, God picked Jerusalem to be like, it it just was so important to him. It's like we find out when Abraham takes Isaac to be sacrificed and they go off to this mount, it's called something different. That's in Jerusalem. So the place that Abraham was supposed to sacrifice his son is the same place that God chose to sacrifice his son. 
So when there's these connections, it's like, let's pay attention to that. So here it is, this person who's a priest, and he's ruling over this city that's Salem, which eventually is Jerusalem. So this is all part of tying in. Well, Mechizeldech actually blessed Abraham in this time. His word is kind of an acronym. It's two words pushed together, and it means king of righteousness. He's a very righteous man after God's own heart. And he was a priest. You see, Jesus wasn't a Jewish priest only. The priests that came from the tribe of Levi were only there to help, in a way, atone for the sins of all of the people who would come to the temple and bring their sacrifices. So they would bring their sacrifice to the priest, the priest would do the rituals, and that was the system that God had set up to atone for your sins. You did something wrong, there's going to now be a punishment, an act, something you have to do to bring yourself into right standing. So here's a good example of that. Hebrews, Hebrews 10 speaks through it. He says, Every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So here's our priest who presented a sacrifice himself. And when he had done that, he was able to sit down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For a single offering, through that, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Many of you in this room, myself, I'll own it. I often don't think that what Jesus did was enough. Well, this is the 30th time that I've done this. It's probably not enough. He perfected it, perfected us. Because when God looks down at us, he doesn't see what we've done. He doesn't look at our ledger, all the things that we've done. He sees Jesus' ledger put on top. Jesus' righteousness is then in our place. As we continue on, we're going to hear it again. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for saying, this is the covenant that I make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. We have to remember that Jesus is a priest forever. Not only is he the king, not only is he in charge, he also stepped into a role that said, I've taken care of your sins forever. The Holy Spirit says, I will not remember their sins and their lawless deeds anymore. Where there is forgiveness of these, there will be no longer an offering for sin. We don't have to continue to bring our sacrifices. We don't have to raise animals for the sole purpose of bringing them as an apology to God. What Jesus did was enough for you. We can have full assurance of faith. And here's the best part, the end, which 
when I read through it at first, it seems dark, and it is. There's some reality, some sobering hard parts to this. But let's read 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand, and He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, and He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. This is all prophetic for what has not yet come. This most people believe, is through the battle of Armageddon when Jesus will return in the clouds and he will come down and one last time, a final judgment, rule the nations. He will step in and battle for us. Here's what we see in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's writing about this. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ we shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put under subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things under subjection under him. A little bit confusing, we'll talk through it. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be in all. Jesus put death under his foot. Not just forgiving our sins. Not just reigning as king. He put death under his foot. And he said, this will no longer hold you. If you simply believe in me, then we'll get to spend eternity together. So my word for us this week, church, is the word hope. As I want to wrap up, I wanted to think through, okay, what do we go from here? This very famous psalm that I didn't know existed a couple weeks ago. But was very, very famous to the New Testament writers. They thought it was so important that they quoted it so many times. God, what do you have us do with this information? I don't want to walk out of here with more head knowledge. Oh, that was interesting. I want us to be able to hold on to something. And the word that I feel like God has for us is hope. The last few years, the last few weeks for me have felt very hopeless. Because at times I pulled my eyes from what's true. I've looked at my surroundings and I've looked inside and it feels so hopeless. I feel so powerless. I feel so discouraged and angry and sad and frustrated at who knows what law is supposed to be in charge this week. Here's what's true. A man who was God came down to earth And he chose to sacrifice himself for you.
and for me. And he said, you will never need forgiveness from sins again outside of what I'm doing for you right now. This is it. This is the end. And for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God in charge. And I'll be the first to say that life does not make sense. Life is chaotic, life is confusing, life is frustrating. But my hope has to come in the fact that Jesus is on the throne. Seated at the right hand of the Father and they know what's going on. Because I have so few hope in myself and in my surroundings. But when I can trust that what Jesus did was enough, that I don't have to continue to perform, that I don't have to keep saying, God, just make me righteous again. And I can just surrender to him and say, God, you have. Jesus, what you did was enough for me. You have been faithful to complete this work. My hope is in that man, God, that priest forever, and the king who is going to come back and make things right. Father, I pray that you help us to find hope in you. Hope in a chaotic world, hope where there's pain and sickness and loss and worry. We need hope. I need hope. I need to be able to hope in you. So today I choose that. I choose to hope in you and not my circumstances. I choose hope. The things that I can't see, that I don't understand, but I believe them to be true because you've spoken them to us. Be with us this week. Help us to bring this hope that you've given us to others. When we see things in other people's lives where they may be downtrodden, they may be hurting, they may be sad, help us to bring that hope, that love, that care to them this week. May we impact and pierce our worlds because of you. Because it's all for you. All things are from you, they flow through you, and they go back to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.